Hey, Kyle. Thanks so much for having us. Love the show. My name is Matt Mulrennan, co-founder and CEO of Colossal. That's Colossal with a K. We are an ocean exploration and conservation nonprofit based in Venice Beach, California. We're going big to explore and protect our ocean. Our first expedition is to try and find and film the colossal squid, the largest invertebrate in the world, off Antarctica. And our conservation side, we're trying to support local, sustainable seafood in California and beyond. So we'd love for you guys to check us out. You can go to colossal.org, that's colossal with a K, or follow us on social media at Colossal Oceans. All right, thanks a lot, guys. That was a message from one of our listeners. If you have a message that you want played at the beginning of the show, you can record it on your phone using the Voice Memos app. Let me know who you are, some details about where exactly you're listening in from, and I would love to play it. Try and keep it under 30 seconds, bonus points if it's funny, and you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf. This episode is with Ram Syed Imami. Ram's father was a prominent Iranian environmentalist who was arrested and interrogated for supposedly being a foreign spy. After he mysteriously died in prison, Ram and his brother decided to pressure the Iranian government for answers. Ram was introduced to me by my buddy Chris Ryan, who recently had him on his podcast, and I had a chance to take both Ram and Chris surfing out at Venice Beach and push him into a couple waves, and then we sat down um, at my buddy Shane's house up the street, and uh, we recorded this. It's a fucking heavy story, and Ram is one heroic dude. Here's a quick clip from the conversation. This plainclothes official runs into the airport, into that lounge, and he says, Maria Mombini, who's Maria Mombini, the name of my mother? And as soon as we heard his voice, we knew that something was wrong. And then a revolutionary guard came and said, yeah, you're on a banned list. You're barred from leaving the country. Um, if you could sons want to get on the plane, they have to get on right now. They're closing the gates in five minutes. And my mom pleaded with us. My brother and I were like, fuck, no, we're not getting on that plane. We're not leaving without you. My mom begged us, like literally begged us to get on that plane just please i just want you guys to be safe in her like final act of unselfish love if any of you feel moved to support rom uh you can reach out to him on instagram i will link to his social media underneath this episode's bio as well as on my website kyle.surf i'm sure just uh even getting a nice message um, from people would mean a lot to him Thank you so much to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. This is an ad-free podcast, and I rely on listeners like you to keep it that way. So thank you so much to everyone who donates every month, 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. It is people like you who keep this show going. It's people like you who allow me to prioritize the show um, and bring you these guests every single week. So if you get value out of this show... Um, please consider donating. I will link to the Patreon page underneath the bio, as well as on my website, kyle.surf. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Ram Syed Imami. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Welcome to you. I'm a tear 
Dude, yeah, great job surfing today. It was awesome. I knew I was going to love it. This was the first time ever going surfing. And um, why'd you I think, think I'm you, hooked. Yeah, why do you think you, you would love it? You know how it's like you always have that feeling if you try that really bad thing your whole life, you're like, no, I know if I try it, I'm going to get hooked. Right. It's like reading Sex at Dawn or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, God, oh, this shit, is... Now my life is ruined. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think surfing was like that for me. But no, I, I always knew I, w- I would have loved it, but for some strange reason, I never, ever went out doing it. Yeah. Well, it's a sport where it's it can be really fun if you go to the right place with the right instructor, and it can be really terrifying if you don't. So there is a barrier to entry um, that I think a lot of people just don't ever get past. And a lot of people have, um, it doesn't sound like you do, but a lot of people have phobias of the water right. and are really afraid of it. Um, and it's... It makes me so happy to help people get through that or help people get up on their first wave because it's something that everyone should be able to do. You know, after all the shit that's happened to me and my family, which we'll get into later, but like fear doesn't play much of a role anymore. So I think right now I'm much more zoned in on doing like all the things I wanted to get off my bucket list, uh, whether I'm afraid of them or not. So it's a good way to go through life. Yeah. Yeah, man. I was impressed with your uh, progression. You you went from not be even being able to paddle to standing up on waves. I'm I, I'm one of those people that I, I really force myself if I'm gonna try something you know to give it my all. Yeah. You know, gotta gotta give it your best. Yeah. Did you have a lot of exposure to nature at a young age? Oh yeah. Um, so my 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 dad would always joke that the reason you always end up so crazy was my dad had this really he's, he's always had Land Rovers most of his life. And uh, he said that the the main reason that you're so crazy and fucked up is because when your mom was pregnant with you, she, we were always up in the outdoors with that Land Rover, and it was bumping <laughs> up and bumping, down so yeah, much yeah. that you probably your brain got damaged. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening in here? <laughs> yeah. Um, so traveling a lot around Iran as a young kid, you would spend a lot of time in nature. Oh uh, yeah. Um, I, I was born in Iran, but when I was like two years old, we moved to uh, Eugene, Oregon, small hippie town. Yeah. And, uh, I know Eugene. Uh, my father was getting his PhD over there and he was like, a, he's a hardcore outdoors enthusiast. Um, I think he's the main reason that I'm here today. I'm going to be mostly talking about him and, and what, what sort of happened to him uh, in the past several months. Um, but yeah, you know, he was a big avid cross-country skier. And you know, cross-country is a very special kind of breed because it's it's sort of like, you know, the bassist in, in, in a band. We're like, who picks up the bass? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, cross-country is one of those things where like, who really goes out cross-country skiing? Yeah. You have to like really have... This it's not like bass jumping or... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it really needs this sort of zen mentality yeah. where you're, you know, very... You're, you're you're in tune with nature. You love being out there alone in the snow and doing this very hard, grueling sort of task. It takes a lot of discipline, I think. Yeah, discipline, patience, and it probably um, draws people who really enjoy noticing in the outdoors. Yeah, you know, definitely. because it is slow enough that you can start to take in more and more of your surroundings. Right. And my dad was um, one of those people who was like the cliche, you know, tree hugger hippie where he, he would always say, like, I feel so high in nature. You know, he's like, I don't need your drugs. You know, I just get naturally high. 
I was always trying to get my dad to do, you know, psychedelics and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he's, he gave me my first joint ever, so you could imagine. It was a pretty cool dad. That is great. But uh, he didn't get too much deeper down in the rabbit hole. I think that nature can provide similar feelings as psychedelics. It's this feeling of awe and wonder and ego death. A lot of people describe being out in the middle of the ocean on a boat like this feeling of being so small and realizing um, just how how unimportant most of the little shit that, that bothers you th- throughout the day really is. And I think that um, a lot of people report similar experiences on psychedelics. Um, yeah, for like I said, my because my, my dad was like, not only was he an outdoors enthusiast, but he, he was also a hunter. Mm. He grew up uh, in a family that was... Um, you know, it's, I think we in generations in our family, we've always had like pointers and, you know, um, hunting and pointers have been always something that's been passed down to us. And uh, even though my dad grew up in an aristocratic, sort of moderately wealthy family, he was showing me these old pictures from back in the day where his family, the way that they would go hunt was that they'd take out like their Mercedes Benz all the way into the desert or into the wild or into the mountains or wherever, and they'd be out hunting. I'm like, that was a pretty fancy way. But um, my father was, um, he was, he was, he was very, uh, uh, he, he was such a hippie and he, he didn't like that lifestyle, that materialistic lifestyle that he grew up in um, and was quite the sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment type of person, a very rebellious person. So he found tendencies more into, you know, leftist type policies, uh, politics and philosophies. Um, but yeah, hunting in the outdoors was something that he would find solace in. I remember as a young kid, too, you know, we'd go out, you know, every year for, like, elk or deer or whatever in Oregon, you know, and then, you know, uh, to, 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 we'd always have elk and deer meat, you know, in the, in the fridge. Um, back in Iran, though, we would mostly hunt uh, partridges because big game, uh, it was illegal anymore to, to, to hunt big game because uh, it became pretty uh, endangered because of a lot of illegal hunting um, the, the the species had really uh, sort of uh, dropped off. Dropped off. Yeah. What do the outdoors look like in Iran? I'm trying to picture it. Well, you know, for the for the size that it is, and I think it's like the size of roughly like Texas or something. I would say, give or take. Um, uh, it's it's a very diverse country where you can find all four seasons at any given time of the year in the country. So you can be like driving in the uh, it's mostly, uh, I would say, mountainous um, sort of terrain, but there's deserts, there's uh, forests, there's the Caspian Sea in the north, there's the Persian Gulf in the south, and um, you can literally go from uh, having like like being in the sand dunes in the middle of the uh, the Kavir, or to like a couple hours away to. to What's the be- Kavir? Kavir means like a, a desert. So we have like Kavir Lut, Dashte Kavir, Marjan Lot. And um, these, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them, mostly located in central Iran. Actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the hottest point on the planet is somewhere in the desert of Iran, like the hottest point. Once I read, I don't know if that's true or not. Sure. But um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very diverse, uh, uh, with, with, a, with a lot of natural resources as well. And um, the, the, the thing about, I think, a lot of people mistakenly think about Iran is that it's they only associate it with sand, thinking it's in the Middle East, like it's like Saudi Arabia or the more uh, Arabic countries, which are more desert-like. And s- um, so I think there's that mistake 
where people think that you know we're riding camels or something. Which, <laughs> right, you know, right. I've, I've yeah. heard that cliche, you know, before. That's yeah, you're gonna have to excuse me, man. There's yeah. gonna be a lot of dumb questions. No, that's this fine. Question. I think that's that's good to like you know inform people and sort of get them to see a different side of of the the country, the geography, its people, its culture. Well, it goes to show how much media in this country has failed us, right? Because we have all these cliches of what we think other people are like from around the world and what their surroundings were like growing up. But like, I'm picturing you talking about this, like there were mountains like the Sierras and then, and lakes and, uh, yeah, absolutely. All, you know, it, I think that it brings it home for people and brings it home for me in, in a way where it, it makes me able to empathize more, you know? And, uh, that's one thing that I love so much about podcasts, right? It's like, we're just, here talking shit for a little while and probably yeah. going to get a more accurate view than, um, you know, a tabloid article or something. Yeah, when, when my band, when we came to the States back in like 2006, seven ish um, we got a lot of press for our story. I was in the New York Times and MTV and a whole bunch of other sort of news networks. And you had very like small amounts of time to like give these sound bites to the journalists and, uh, a lot of times what would come out sounded very inaccurate and exaggerated. And, you know, I, I, I sort of, I never finished, but I studied international relations at school and, and I, I'm sort of well read on the politics of how, you know, media works and how, how, to the point of, you know, as much education that I've had to understand how this whole thing operates. Um, so I would realize that uh, there was this very orientalistic approach to our story where they felt like, oh, I never got like a, an article about me about saying if my music sucks or if it's good or bad. You know, it's, it was always about, oh, look at these, you know, exotic animals in a cage who know also how to play a guitar. Mm. So, um, and that sucked because an artist, you want to be uh, judged by your, the merit of your work, not by the, the, where you come from or how you dress or how you look or whatever. And because um, I honestly thought that it was undeserving all the attention. I, th I really thought we sucked. We were terrible musicians. And I, I, the music, everything I think was terrible about it. It took me like a decade to develop my and own my skills and to get into a place where today I feel like I'm still not even, I probably reached only 10% of my potential. But like I'm, I can comfortably say that, okay, now I'm getting better at what I'm actually doing. And But um, what is media like in Iran? Oh, it's very close. So it's it's state sanctioned. So this is the problem with with Iran is that all the, like the, the television channels and networks are run by the state. Um, but and what little um, sort of progressive newspapers that we have are puts under so much scrutiny and are always pushed to the brink of being closed down. Like every other month or several months, we have a new like a progressive newspaper being closed down. Um, by the authorities because it's very difficult to speak out it is a theocracy essentially you know and um break down what that looks like so basically in iran we have a supreme leader who um is uh, voted in by the i i don't know the details exactly of how he, they, they decided it was it was going to be him i think it's through this, the, the guardian council or the jurisprudent council or something but it's, it's it's his his role is basically he has sort of like divine authority or you know like the olden days of the kings and whatnot so uh, who overlooks everything in the country he is essentially he has the last say on everything and then underneath there's the president and uh, the judicial branch uh, the executive branch um, and where people sort of uh, uh, vote for the president 
And um, so what is the problem with state sanctioned media? The problem is that the agendas of the, the government of the Islamic Republic is very, you know, laid out in a way where anything outside the context of what, what is in our Islamic interests is not acceptable. You know, so for example, like on TV, you know, they, they wouldn't show anyone without scarves on their heads or or, or portray or sort of uh, have shows that have too much of Western values. You know, I mean, right now it's it's changed because nobody even watches state TV as much anymore because everybody has satellite TV in their home or the Internet. Almost so um, most of the programming and stuff that people follow are channels that are being broadcast from outside of Iran into inside of Iran. How did you educate yourself growing up? Um, well, I, I grew up like all around the world. I was sort of a global nomad. You know, I grew up in in the, in the states, went back to Iran, then we went to Canada, went back to Iran, came back to New York, then you know, L.A., London, Toronto, Vancouver. So it's like wow, a what a cool way to grow up. Yeah, it's been a lot of jumping around. Um, Good education is a global education. Absolutely, you know, the the university of life, as the cliche goes, um, of, of just meeting different people and cultures and getting to know them is, is, is one of the best ways to sort of expand your horizons. Like I was telling you, you and Chris earlier, um, where, you know, I when I was touring across the States, I would be like in, in the middle of um, some random state um, in the Midwest and... I would think about the stereotypical things I've heard of the, those people, and they had these stereotypical views of myself. But at the end of the day, music was a language that would bring us together, and after the concert, we become friends, even though we probably have very differing and, and opposing views on a lot of subjects. But through the power of music, we were just able to connect, and for that moment in space and time, become became really close and connected. But what surprised me the most was like seeing so many people who had never left their state. I mean, let alone have a passport. They had never left their state. And that was just mind-boggling to me, is how could you not have this sort of essence of curiosity to want to see and explore the world and other people and other cultures? It, it, I, don't, I don't know how some people can just do that and just stay put, you know, wherever they are. And I don't think it just applies to America. I'm sure there's like a lot of different socioeconomic reasons for a lot of these things, too. But, but I think that it, a big part of it is mindset, because if you do want to go out and see the world, you can make it happen. Most oh, people can make it happen. Um, but I think that it's similar to what you were talking about with surfing or reading a dangerous book. When you get exposed to how big the world is and just how much there is to learn, it kind of fucks up your life in a way because you never want to stop. Yeah, and I think I've always seen people who always complain like, oh, how do you guys travel like around the world? You guys must be really rich or it's so expensive. I'm like, dude, no, you know, I've... I've traveled with so little that you have no idea, you know, and I've lived in a suitcase for years. And honestly, those were the happiest times of my life, having that very minimal life of just being on the road and, and enjoying and experiencing new adventures every day. And I, I really don't think it's, it's, it's that difficult and far, but you don't have to stay at five-star hotels or whatever. You just have a sleeping bag in a tent. You're good to go. Yeah, it seems like those were... Uh, and cool friends that you can crash at. You know, that's what... And, I, and I'm really good at making friends. So everywhere I'd go to, I'd just find someone. I'd either tent in their yard or go yeah. crash out in a bed in the room or whatever. Packing light as a traveler is maybe 10% of the skill. The other 90% is going to a guest's, going to someone's house and leaving a good impression on them so that when they think about you, they're going to want you to come back. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you were telling me that you guys would uh, 
all crash in your van touring around the U.S. That sounded like a, a cool time in your life. Oh, that was one of the best times, you know, just being on the road and, and just living it up in the van and uh, bonding with your friends and, and all the people that you meet in every city. It's, um, it makes life worth living. You know, one thing I knew from a child, I never knew I'd end up being a musician. I became a singer just by random because I spoke English. That was the only reason I became a singer. Um, because back in Iran, my friends were looking for someone who knew how to speak English. That's it. I, yeah. It wasn't because I knew how to play an instrument. I taught myself how to play everything I know now. But um, So I want to, it sounds like your dad taught you a lot about living globally, living life, or living light, um, traveling light. And I want to hear a bit more about his story because I think that this is, is important if you're willing to yeah, yeah, get absolutely. into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's always a, it's it's. I mean, because it's a very fresh story, so it's very difficult, you know, for me to excuse me to constantly be reminded about it. But I think it's also therapeutic to 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 keep talking about it and getting it out of the system. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, it's. I mean, it's been in the news a lot recently. But my father was arrested uh, January 24th of this year in a Tehran prison called Evin, which is the most notorious prison back in Iran, if not the Middle East, one of the scariest places you could end up in. Um, uh, on unjust uh, charges, by the way, um, actually we never even knew what the charges were to begin with, um, with no evidence or of wrongdoing. Uh, he was just taken away. He was on a holiday at the north of Iran with my mom, and he got a phone call that, can you come and report yourself to a police station? And he obviously being the transparent person he is with a clean record, I have nothing to be worried about. He's like, sure. Goes to the police station, and they put a bag around his head, and they take him away, all the way straight from the north of Iran back to Tehran to Evin prison. And that was the last he was ever seen. Because two weeks later, they, they gave us the news that he had killed himself, which, again, was very suspicious. And to this day, you know, we, we don't believe that because there's no evidence of of, of, of that claim and I'll get into that because it's all makes his story crazier um, but just to say a bit about my dad um, yeah like I said earlier you know he grew up in a very wealthy family but he was always this outdoorsy guy that was his thing you know even though he studied sociology he got a PhD in sociology and he taught sociology and politics at, at university um, being outdoors was his biggest passion in life in Iran he helped start an NGO one of the most successful ones called the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation um, in, in terms of wildlife conservation. And they did a very good job of, you know, especially uh, tracking down an endangered species by the name of the Asiatic cheetah, which is pretty few in, in Iran. They were able to track them down and monitor them, you know, and set up camera traps. These camera traps were also part of what he was accused of, that they were saying that using these camera traps to send reports out to the West, which is absolutely absurd because anybody knows that these traps are, you know, they, the, the range that they, they have and the, they're... Right, so they're like hunting cameras. Yeah, like hunting cameras. Yeah, yeah, cameras. no, I've set up those cams. They're not great. They're not. They're, they're, they're <laughs> almost like disposable because they usually yeah. get lost or broken, you know, so they're not really high-tech, you know, equipment. And um, that was one of the accusations, actually, that they were using these to send sensitive data, which is absolutely stupid. Um, but, yeah, you know, when uh, growing up, and my dad, like, he would take us all out camping at least once a week. We were always in the wild. And this group of ours became bigger and bigger um, uh, until it became, like, 60, 70 people a trip. 
And my dad and my mom were sort of like the camp leaders and this group would rotate until it became like thousands of people who had come camping with us. My dad sort of became like this godfather of camping back in Iran. And he inspired like many generations, you know, to go out and explore the more beautiful natural side of Iran. Um, because the, the chaos in the city, the pollution and the madness, the, you need to get out away from it back in Iran. It's not like some relaxed city, you know, it's, it's hustle and bustle. It's, it's, it's polluted. It's crazy. It's, it's mad. So getting out to, to nature is you, you need that sort of break or else you go crazy. Uh, the, the first book my dad ever gave me was, um, I think, White Fang by Jack London. I don't know if you remember that book. And, you know, that, those, those are the kind of things that he really tried to instill and inspire. He was, you know, my dad was exactly like, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip? Sure. My dad is exactly like Calvin's dad. You know, how you know, he's always trying to take him out to, to the, and he looks like him too, in right. a way, you know, glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was always trying to inspire Calvin, you know, to be in the, in, you know, in the outdoors and appreciate and enjoy nature. And then my dad always like was almost like forcing us to enjoy hiking and you know hunting and fishing. And we're like, ah, oh, let us just play our Nintendo, goddammit. But eventually we we caught the bug too and became quite adventurous. You know, my brother has been climbing like the highest mountains. You know, did it in Iran. He went to what's the highest mountain in South America? I think it's in Argentina. I'm not mistaken. Um, he went down there. He went the, to is Russia. Is it the Andes? I think it was in the Andes. I don't remember the name of the mountain. I but don't know. I could be wrong about that. But, um, yeah, so our whole family, you know, uh, if you come, you see we have, like, a shitload of camping gear. And, you know, our cars are both all four by four. We never had, like, a regular car, you know. And um, it's just something that he was very passionate about. So how did this whole situation occur? What was the the moment that you first heard about it? So in Iran, there's a, there's, there are people who, are, who work above and outside of the law. One of these organizations is called the Revolutionary Guards. They're not voted by the people or any branch in government. They're just these powerful people who basically run the show. They control the oil, the wealth, the the weapons. The Revolutionary Guard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, not, the name sounds, you know, terrifying in itself, <laughs> yeah. too. The Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guards. Um, but these people um, uh, have... Uh, control over every aspect of society and in, in, in government and they always have you know they, they monitor every single part and one of the few places that they didn't know what was going on were NGOs so non-governmental organizations yeah non-governmental organizations yeah. and um, so this the, is for people who don't know this is like Surfrider Greenpeace a lot of environmental organizations like the wildlife the conservationists or yep. whatever you know and excuse me um, one of the things that they, they didn't have a handle on with the NGOs and how they get their money because these are funded by Western sort of organizations. Because in Iran, nobody funds NGOs. Nobody helps out. It's one of those things where people are like, why should we help, you know, you know, animals? Or why should we, you know, try to like, you know, reduce pollution? Who cares? I mean, because these people in Iran who really get into this job have like such an uphill battle. It's not like over here where people actually do like a lot of, I don't, I don't want to generalize. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people back in Iran too who care about the environment and animals. But over here, I think in, in the West, they're, they're, they're much more, you know, 
Uh, there's more of a culture around it. Maybe. Yeah, there's much more of a culture around it now where people really w- want to sort of take an active approach towards saving the planet. Right. Well, it's also a selling point in California. If I were to tell you about California, it's, all right, well, here's Yosemite, here's the Sierras, here's Santa Monica Beach. These are all places that are, um, they are devoid of development, right? So th- that is a big aspect of our culture that people really want to protect. So the, the Revolutionary Guards, since they want to be able to control and monitor every aspect of society, the NGOs are getting their funding mostly from Western organizations. And so that raises a lot of suspicion. They're getting you know millions of dollars or whatever amount of money that they're getting that's coming from these places that they're not aware of. And to them, that that's very suspicious. I mean, to a lot of these people, the, the, the paranoid elements within the government, anybody who's, who's even a dual citizen is considered some sort of spy. Wow. So it's pretty intense, but you know, we Iran is quite an Orwellian state. But you get to learn to sort of live with that fear. It becomes like second nature. So it's not scary as as you think it is. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, you know, when we were kids growing up uh, in Iran, you you grow you you're raised with this idea of that. Okay, you tell your parents tell you don't tell anyone that we drink. Don't tell anyone that we have you know videos or like you know we watch movies or foreign movies. So you always had to like live up to this lie. And, it, and that's why I think there's such a sort of dichotomy in our culture with our people. Where we have Everybody has this public persona and this private persona. Um, instead of just being themselves and being comfortable with who they are, people always have to have this feeling of always having to hide themselves. Yeah, shame and the guilt. Shame. There's oh, a, yeah, there's a lot there's of a, shame and guilt. There's a lot of that in every culture, just in different degrees. Like the amount of people before weed was, was legal in California that were closet weed smokers, hmm. successful businessmen and businesswomen who didn't want anyone to know, and they would go into the bathroom and smoke some weed and then flush the toilet so all the smoke would go down, rather than just being out in the open and being like, wait, weed actually isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And... You know, but in Iran, I think I was, I was telling Chris, you know, about this, you know, like the whole idea about sexuality and everything. There was always so many conservative, you know, these the conservative values and traditional way of thinking towards sex made feel people feel really shameful and guilty towards the whole act. But now, like, it's there's so much sexual frustration. It's come out on another side of, of our culture and our, our society where there's like an overabundance of now, like, crazy sex happening in the city because I think people had hold, held back for so long that now it's coming out in any crazy form that it can. Yeah, it creates a pressure cooker situation Absolutely. where when you can't talk about it openly and uh, do the stuff that you're into without shame. And you should, you, you have to imagine that there's like all this like pornography being like beamed in from like satellite TV. It's all these like free porn channels and there's porn on the internet, obviously. So is the internet uncensored in Iran? No, no, it's censored, but people like they find a way to get around it through VPN and proxy networks. And they're very smart, the kids nowadays, you know, they know exactly how to move around this web of like censorship. Yeah, nothing to make a kid motivated, like telling them they can't do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, any kid in the world knows this. We've all lived through this. You tell anyone to, oh, you can't do this. They're definitely doing the opposite. It just makes it like um, worse. Oh yeah. Girls with the most overprotective parents were the wildest in high school. (laughs) <laughs> Same thing in Iran too. A lot of these conservative fathers I've seen, you know, that it, it, it's very true. It's very. It sounds almost very cliche, but it's it's very true. I think. Um, but I think that's one of the cool things that you know my father, like in terms of raising us, he was very open-minded. He was never the kind of person to tell us that you have to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer to be happy. He said, just do do whatever that makes you happy, and and I'm happy that way too. 
Um, so it was very cool to have him sort of being this progressive, open-minded, both my parents, my, my father and my mother. I think that's why my brother and I were both turned out to be sort of like, you know, decent human beings. We're both well-traveled, have seen the world. I mean, I'm more of an artist. He's more like this, you know, he was, you know, like a corporate Buddhist. He's a very Steve Jobsy type of character. What speaks... Um, it speaks a lot to your character to see what you're doing in response to this. Also, not everyone would have this happen to their father and then come to LA and start talking about it with big media outlets. Yeah. I mean, we went to New York actually more because there were like more politicians and, and, and human rights, uh, activists and, and people over there for us to get in touch with. Cause I mean, after this happened, um, we went on such a tangent. I even I think we were sure. talking about. Well, I want to. I do want to uh, keep going, but I want to okay. get back to the moment when you first heard about what was happening to your dad. Yeah. So I was in New York um, uh, when when that happened. I think um, when I got the phone call, and because I had known that my dad was arrested for two weeks, and we were we were all pondering like, what what should our move be? Because my my father had some pretty like powerful connections back home as well. You know, he taught at a very important university, a very hardline university, mind you, and. My dad was like the most liberal, progressive person in the craziest of places to be, you know. But he felt that if he, like, he literally wasn't the beast of the belly, but he felt that if he could change the minds of two of his students over there, they were somehow, because all of his students ended up becoming ministers and, you know, important politicians in the country. He felt that if he could have a positive effect on, you know, on the minds of a couple of these kids, they could somehow have a rippling effect on the future of our society and culture which was a very noble, you know, sort of way of, of, of approaching the whole thing. Yeah, I think that it's also intelligent when you look at change makers like Martin Luther King, they would go to, you know, he would go to the most racist parts of the country and march there because that's where the biggest effect would be seen. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if there's a parallel there with your dad teaching, but, um, but so how did you first get notified? I got a phone call from a very close friend of my dad, and um, he said, are you sitting down? I have to tell you something. And my first initial thought was that something happened to my mom, because I knew my mom was like really worried, and she was alone during this time, and I thought that she had gone to the hospital or, or something bad happened to her. But um, he's like, uh, we just got news that your father has passed. So who called you? My, one of my dad's best friends. Okay. I mean, my mom couldn't talk. I mean, she was just so devastated. As soon as, as soon as I heard the news, my brother was in Shenzhen, China, that he had then come to Vancouver. And the both of us, uh, we got on the next plane that we could to go back to Iran against the advice of all of our friends and family because they're like, they're going to arrest you guys, don't come back, whatever. We're like, fuck it, we have to go and bury our own father. I mean, so what? But so I wanted to take you back to the moment when you first heard that he got arrested. Mm. How did that happen? So, um, as I was saying earlier, you know, my father and my mother were on a holiday trip to the north of Iran to go to to say the villa of one of their friends up in the forest over there. And um, my dad got a phone call. Hey, you have to come to this police station. You know, you have to report in. We just want to ask a couple of questions. And that's when I told you they put a bag around his head and they took him away. They compounded our car. They took the car away. And uh, my mom called me and she said uh, the, the police have... Um, oh, my mom didn't call me. Actually, my brother, he, he sent me a text. that dad's been arrested. And then I called him. I'm like, what? Why? Like, you know, dad's never done anything wrong in his life. And um, they're like, yeah, they, apparently they just took him in for questioning. And um, uh, they, at the same time, they raided our home. 
So while my dad was in the north and back in Tehran, 30 authorities, like plainclothes officials, came and just broke down and went into our house and just completely ransacked the place. They took eight, nine suitcases worth of all of our personal belongings, computers, hard drives, childhood photo albums, the deeds to our homes. And uh, my musical equipment, I have a studio in the basement. They, they, they took all my equipment because they said this, this equipment was being used as for espionage. We didn't know about any of this, like, because we didn't know what the accusations were for, and we were trying to figure this out, because for two weeks we were left in the dark. They didn't tell us why he was arrested. I mean, he had no legal representation or counsel, or there was no due process during this whole thing happening. Um, so imagine, like, for us as a family, we're just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on, and then they're telling us if you speak out, it's going to get much worse. And there's that fear, like, shit, if, if we speak out and say something... Uh, which, you know, I wish I had, but at this point, I don't know, because my father's case, it went all the way up high, and it, what's what's done is done. You know, we can't change the past. It's, we can only deal with this and, and move on and live, you know, the rest of our lives out. But um, there was this sense that, you know, I, I think I would have I been much more guilty had I done something and spoke out or made some noise, and then he died. I think I never would have forgiven myself that way. I think it would have been much more difficult. But regardless, I still, like, if... If anybody is hearing this and is out there and has a loved one who's in a position of danger or in a prison and they've told them to not speak out, do speak out. Like, that's the first thing you have to do. Because it raises the profile of exactly. the prisoner and they're less likely, the, the prison is less likely to um, be careless. Exactly. You know, now that there's like, you know, so, sort of what we've done with our mom, which I'll get into, you know, how we magnified her story through the press and the media. And they're not, you know, even though she's being held essentially hostage, because after all this happened. So my brother and I went back, you know, we tried to like deal with the authorities and they were giving us the runaround and, you know, constantly harassing us and threatening us. Um, uh, how so? Well, OK, so our house was raided twice. And the first time they took away all of our like personal belongings and important things. The second time they came and threw my mom out of the house and said, we're just going to like, we have some work to do. And they just basically did whatever they wanted for eight hours there, bugging the place. Um, we actually were, I found like this, my, one of my friends had these, like these, um, this, this machine that could detect like sort of magnetic waves. And we were like, we found like one of the bugs in the house. And anyways, like, so. But I mean, we we were just so like I would wake up in the morning and be like, "Hey, good morning, guys. Who wants some coffee?" Or you know, I'd be talking to them like, "Hey, I, I want, I'm going to go off and masturbate now. If, if you guys could kindly <laughs> yeah. like look away, you know." So it was like really strange to to be in that environment. And, and this is while your dad was still in prison. No, he had already passed. He had already that. passed. Yeah, because wow. when he passed, we you know we we came back, and um, so the whole circumstances around his death was that they claimed that he had committed suicide. Now, first of all, like I said, my dad was arrested unjustly with no charges, no representation, no trial, no court, you know, at least something. And, you know, at Evin prison, it's notorious for the way that they torture people and mostly through psychological torture. The shit that they do is really scary. It's really crazy. They also use truth serums. They inject truth serums, probably some sort of hallucinogen. Uh, into people to get them to speak out more. They make they force people into writing hundreds of pages of confessions that they were operating, on, you know, and working with the West to bring down the government. And people know all this stuff is bullshit. They know these forced confessions don't mean shit, but it's their way of, you know, ruining or putting down the pe those the lives of those people. And a lot of times, the reason that they arrest these people are either they're wealthy landowners, like my dad's co-founder, um, 
you know, he was a very wealthy. So he's still in prison as we speak. You know, he, right. he was the main target. They wanted to get him for whatever reason, you know. And um, and my dad was just like sort of like a unintended consequence of being associated to him, I guess. And so do you think that the um, what was the organization that arrested your dad? The Revolutionary Guards, the intelligence unit of the Revolutionary Guards. Do you Guards. think that the intelligence unit of the Revolutionary Guard benefited any way in arresting your dad, or do you think that it was strictly a case of paranoia? I mean, it was absolutely a, a case of paranoia because the, for them, first of all, these hardliners, this intelligence unit, it works and operates outside of the actual Ministry of Intelligence. I mean, it's so crazy, the system and how it works, how people who have no authority can just run into your home and take your whole life away. It's it's absolutely, you know, people, I keep telling my friends in the West, you guys take your fucking freedoms for granted. You know, every single small basic right you have that you can exercise from voting to being uh, active in your small communities and neighborhoods and councils and city and bigger, whatever, use it and exercise that right because it means a lot. You know, when the, in the absence of those simple rights, you get that kind of chaos that we're, where we live in right now. Where organizing in a group could get th- you thrown in jail. Yeah, exactly. You know, my father had some very powerful grassroots, you know, um, connections. And they were, the, the, the Revolutionary Guards are always afraid of this sort of, these people who had this ability to sort of mobilize people or whatever. I mean, so it's a combination of things. It's, it's like they thought, you know, they were like, they thought they had found the biggest espionage like network since the revolution happened in 79 they they thought they found like the james bond basically of iranian espionage your dad the environmentalist yeah, they, they, <laughs> the poor environmentalist who all he ever did was trying to like save cheetahs you know became i mean they even blamed the entire drought in the country on my dad the whole what? fucking i mean it's so absurd when you even think about it because they were running out of ideas so you know how Goebbels, the, the German Nazi propaganda minister, would say the bigger the lie, the more likely people would believe. I mean, that's like a simple playbook from these guys. And after the arrest, and when my father died, because it's, it's the circumstances around it were so suspicious, they started just going crazy in the media of attacking our family and started this big smear campaign against my dad. In state-sanctioned media. State-sanctioned media. And it was just insane. Like, uh, my brother and I were uh, like a, us against this Goliath of a monster of not knowing what to do and how to deal with, with this. Um, so we realized that the only way that we can stay safe is to try to control the narrative. That's why we started speaking out more. We got, like, the New York Times and everybody involved. Um, and I think one of the biggest miscalculations on the part of the Revolutionary Guards was that my father was a very beloved person and somewhat of a well-connected person, both on the right and the left, and, you know, the poor and the rich and nomads and tribesmen and every type walk of character and i'm like this pseudo celebrity musician back home i know a lot of people especially journalists in the west because in the past decade i've been interviewed by a bunch of different outlets and i've made friends with all these journalists so my first you know thing was after my father's death i reached out to all these people and we started getting the story in the press and it really snowballed into getting a lot of attention and the government freaked out about this backlash of of all this press and attention it was getting so to domestically sort of quiet the situation they started attacking our family doubling down on the lies so like blaming my dad for the drought saying that he was convincing farmers to do this and they were moving water from like one dam to the source they were convincing like engineers to i mean it's so absurd are these any media outlets that uh people here would have heard about um, domestically? No, yeah. no, no. I mean, the These state are all dom- domestic, yeah. state-sanctioned media outlets. Yeah, 
And um, yeah, so they they said that my dad not only worked with like MI6, CIA, and Mossad. You know, it's like I'm like, well, what was he, Jason Bourne? You know, I mean, the computers that they confiscated, they took away from our homes, the hard drives. My mother had a knack of taking a picture of us every fucking day of our lives since I was a baby. I mean, I don't think another human being has as much archive of photos from their whole life as much as we do because of the amount of photos that my mom takes of our family. Um, so they can easily see through the history of, you know, all, all the things that we've been through throughout our whole life on those hard drives. There's f- photographic evidence of everywhere my father's been and everything he's done. And they'll see that 90% of those pictures of him just like camping or hunting or fishing or hiking in the outdoors. So um, they, in a way, you have to also understand in terms of Iranian politics, the hardliners and the conservatives are always trying to disrupt the liberal and progressives. I mean... Uh, as much as they can because the more they bring down those people they can say oh look at this government they're 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 ineffective and they want to always take credit for anything that good that happens so you know when the rohani government the 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 recent president who became president actually for his second term he just he got re-elected for his second term just recently like last year you know he's he's the one who had to make the nuclear deal with the west and they're trying to open up diplomatic relations with the west I mean, I mean, he's a progressive and considered in terms of how much progressive a cleric can be. You know, he's not like some saint himself either. You know, we ha- it's like the lesser of evils, basically. But still, he's someone who is willing to like open, you know, diplomatic relations with the West instead of letting the country veer more towards a, a path of like North Korea and, and that more sort of hermit like that. But that's what the hardliners want. They want us to be moved and, and cornered into that sort of space because that, that way they can completely domestically consolidate their power and control every aspect of society and government. And it becomes much more suffocating. And the people are the ones who are suffering because whenever there's sanctions, whenever there's like all this terrible shit happening or wars break out in the Middle East, as you've seen, the people, it's the regular civilians who, are the, who, who suffer the most from all this conflict. Do you think that these stories um, that the Revolutionary Guard need to put out are in an effort to create, are, are actually in an effort to create more paranoia. Not only that they're paranoid themselves, but that they recognize that a culture of paranoia is easier to control. Absolutely, because if you look at it, they don't have the apparatus to control everyone. Right. You know, they're, they're, you know it's, there's too many of people for them to even because they don't have that much you know manpower to monitor and control everyone but they've instilled so much fear and terror and make made examples out of people where people just self-censor themselves people just end up you know uh, doing the job for them because there's so much fear and terror um, associated in their lives that for example after this happened to us you know, they called just a couple of our friends around us and threatened them that like, if you guys keep contact with them, you know, we'll fuck you up too. They called my celebrity friends. They said, if you want to keep acting and for us to not throw acid in your face, you'll shut the fuck up and not talk about their family. So just making a couple of examples like this, all of a sudden we were left on an island. Like so many people had just completely left us in the dark because they were terrified of just being associated with us and that if whatever they had was going to be taken away by the government too. It's it's crazy, you know, when you think about it, you know, it's like these are people that you cherish and love and you're, you you think are your best friends or family or whatever. And When did you have to leave Iran? So you were there for a few weeks after your father died. Right. 
So after all the harassment, like I said, they would they would they would bump into me in the streets and tell me that we're watching you. You know, um, I had what to kinds of guys would plain clothes officials? You know, these big brawny, you know, uh, like scary looking guys. They will come and just like bump into me, like we we know everything you're doing. Just just watch out. You know, if you and your brother don't shut up, we'll shut you up. And every day I thought I had this fantasy that, you know, I was just some guy in a motorcycle is going to pass by, you know, and just like fill me up with bullets. I would, I, and I was like, oh, that's at least a good, noble way to go. <laughs> Fuck. And um, I just so can't imagine what that would I had like, like burner psych- phones, psychologically. man. I literally, you know, like the wire or whatever. Like I had burner phones like to call because I was in touch with, you know, the Canadian government and journalists and stuff. I had like burner email accounts and everything. I had to go on different like phone networks to just connect through VPNs to make sure that my signal couldn't get traced or whatever. I was like literally living like, you know, now all of a sudden my life had become like a yeah, big for- political thriller <laughs> sort of. Uh, from like vagabond musician exactly. going camping with your friends to leading this life of uh, really high stakes, man. So you got out of Iran to tell this story. Yeah. Uh, the, the main reason, like I said, we left was because we, we realized that we need to, to grieve in peace and, in, and, and, and have some more tranquil you know, uh, space for ourselves. And uh, so on March 8th, when we decided to leave, we packed up like 10 suitcases. We had our three German short hair pointers and, you know, um, all the things that we thought we needed. We had donated all of our father's books away to the National Library. We had taken care of most of the stuff that we had to back home. And we didn't have the deeds to our home because we were hoping we could sell those to come back and start life anew. But they'd taken those away, too. So essentially overnight from having a beautiful family, everything perfect in our lives, our father was taken. He was killed. Um, our, our, our money, our everything that we had was, was wiped off the planet and we're just left with a bunch of suitcases and, and money ticket. also, yeah, did they shut down your bank accounts? Yeah. You know, my, 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 my father's account and I mean, he didn't even have that much money anyways. I mean, I mean the money that we had was in assets in the house and the land. We didn't have like liquid assets or anything. So when we, uh, when we decided to leave, uh, we brought a bunch of our friends to the airport as sort of security for us. Cause you know, we were obviously a bit. You know, worry that, you know, some shit is going to go down, you know, today. It's best to have some, you know, some backup. <laughs> and we went to the sort of VIP lounge because we didn't want to go to the public area because obviously everybody knew who our family was because being in the media everywhere, but domestically and internationally, we didn't want to draw any attention. We were just sitting in the VIP lounge. We gave our tickets in. They said, okay, you know, everything seems good, you know, and we thought that we're good to go. And we were just sitting in the lounge laughing it off with our friends that finally we're leaving and... You know, we can be in peace, but how crazy would it be if, like, the ending of Argo, you know, something, you know, crazy happened? I just had that picture in my mind. Exactly. You know, it was like that exact scenario, except for Argo, they got out of the country. For us, the last second, as we were the last people boarding on the Lufthansa flight to, out to Frankfurt and to Vancouver, this plainclothes official runs into the airport, into that lounge, and he says, Maria Mombeni, who's Maria Mombeni, the name of my mother? And as soon as we heard his voice, we knew that something was wrong. And a revolutionary guard came and said, yeah, you're on a banned list. You're barred from leaving the country. Um, if you could sons want to get on the plane, they have to get on right now. They're closing the gates in five minutes. And my mom pleaded with us. My brother and I were like, fuck, no, we're not getting on that plane. We're not leaving without you. My mom begged us, like literally begged us to get on that plane. Just please, I just want you guys to be safe. And her like final act of unselfish love, she just pushed us on that plane and said, you guys go over there and just get settled down and take care of this from on the other side. I need you guys to be safe. And that was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life with my brother.
That's okay. It's all right, man. Yeah, you know, it's hard talking about it, you know, just because, you know, what happened to my father, it's done, but my mother's like this innocent woman who just loves gardening and camping and, you know, being held, now she's being essentially held hostage and... It's fucked up because um, they're saying that now she's like complicit, and you know the reason they they've they've opened up charges against her is because so if the 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 the, the different the opposing intelligence uh, agencies have like this game of cat and mouse, whoever catches the other guy first, the other one can't get involved. So immediately the intelligence unit of the Revolutionary Guards came and opened up a charge against my mom. So they could move the profile away from the government. Because if my mom was cut by this, by the, the, the actual Ministry of Intelligence, she would have been out of the country by now. But these people are like the scariest, most dangerous people you can imagine who operate above and beyond the law and don't give a fuck about you know local or international law or politics and just operate out of survival and fear and paranoia. And it's such a terrifying position for my mom to be in uh, alone back home in Iran. I mean, we have friends who are staying with her constantly and trying to take care of her. My brother and I have been, like, speaking out to as many people as we can. You know, like I said, we went to New York. We've been in touch with the highest levels of government, both in, you know, in the States, especially in Canada. The prime minister and foreign minister and many MPs are involved. Um, you know, uh, the UN Human Commissioner for the UN Commissioner for Human Rights, um, the other members, EU members, I mean, whoever you can think of journalists we've been in touch with. And the more that we magnify the story, the more that I speak out, you know, uh, about it, I think I'm, I'm securing my mom because it brings this attention where I think that they don't, I know for a fact that they do not want to, like, even touch a hair on her body because they know if anything, the smallest thing would happen to her, it would cause such a, a huge outcry. So if you had the attention of every important person that you wanted to talk to right now, what is the statement that you would make? You know, it doesn't really matter because I've just seen firsthand how fucked up um, the, the bureaucracy of politics are. You know, I've never been in this world, but I'm meeting with so many high-level people. You see that the political interests involved are not just about my mom. You know, obviously, like, the Canadian government is concerned. Other human rights, you know, people are concerned. They're doing everything in their power to help her get her out. But they're also, you have to be reminded that they're operating with a group of people who are inconsiderate and of, of, of international law. But at the same time, you see there's so much else going on between behind the scenes where there's, like, big um and I, I'm, I'm very uninformed about this and i'm just learning about a lot of these things where i hear you know that there's this this deal happening with this with these plane parts or 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 this company has some sort of contract and they're becoming now negotiating points my mom has essentially become like you know like a piece like a chess piece where she's being used as a pawn in, in a in a in a bigger scheme you know especially like i, I reached out to a lot of like you know the european union members and a lot of them, you know, because of... They, they weren't willing to burn any political credit for this story. 
to. It doesn't really matter what I say to them because to them it's not worth it. They want to go on to because they're like, okay, one person was a victim of this, you know, terrible violence, which happens, by the way, on a much larger scale than you can imagine. Because at my father's funeral, there were a group of mothers who came and talked to my brother and I and saying, thank you for being our voice because their kids had been arrested for some random act, maybe protesting in the street or something. And they got killed and buried in an unknown grave. And not me or you or anyone else on this planet will ever know their names. Just like that, they were taken away from their families. But they didn't come from a more sort of, I guess, affluent family like ours. Or my father was well known. I was like this, you know, sort of known musician. And we were able to get the word out and, and, and to, to share the story with the world. I can't even imagine their pain. They just had to like live with that. No one ever listened to them. They were never able to hire anyone to go after their cases. They were never able to get the word out. And now their kids are just buried in some unknown grave in the middle of nowhere. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really dark when you, when you get into the, the, yeah. the, the gritty, nitty details of it. It's just so fucked up. But I think that there are a lot of people, though, that do care about this story and have moms and dads and kids that... Um, are environmentalists and have stories that are similar to yours and can probably really empathize with um, with what you're going through. So, you know, if you could say something to those people that do care and if you had their ear right now, what would you say? Um, I guess any kind of support would be appreciated, especially in terms of, you know, helping magnify the story even more. Maybe starting a campaign of some sorts. Um any way that I can get the word out and to get the attention of, of, of the, the, the Iranian government is, is helpful because the more they know that there's so many people who are concerned about the well-being of my mother, the more likely it is that they'll pressure the elements within the government to let her go. Because you can't go back right now. No, I was essentially told if I go back, I'll get arrested for forever. Who told you that? Um, we have an insider in the Revolutionary Guards who was a former student of my dad. And he basically told me that if you come back, you're you're gone for good. So I'm exiled from my own country now forever. So is the goal to get your mom out now? I mean, basically. I mean, you know, and uh, she, you know, because everything over there reminds her so much of my father. And she's in such a difficult place. You know, she, she, she was with my father since she was 17 years old. So you can imagine all she's ever known her life was my dad. But she's been so strong and so resilient during these times as well. I mean, I'm really proud of my whole family, my brother, my mom, and all of us just trying to stick it through because it's so easy to just, you know, obviously we're hurt, but like, and I'm sure there's some sort of trauma as well, but I'm not letting, allowing myself to be a victim of, of this circumstance because that's what the hardliners want. They want us to be miserable. They want us to not go out and have fun. They want us to fucking just be depressed for the rest of our lives. And I know that's the exact opposite of what my father raised me to be. My fa- and I know my father, no matter how way he went out of this world, he would always have wanted for me to go out, be happy and live a f- fulfilling life and and go on with my adventures for as long as I can. So that's why I refuse to give in to this sadness and this depression and, and continue to go out and, and, and try to speak out and live my life, you know, the way that he would have intended for me to do. Yeah. Well, I hope that this uh, helps get more attention around your story. And I think that you're doing everything um, that you can. Um, And I respect the hell out of you for the way that you are uh, moving forward in a really difficult time in your life.
thanks man thanks so much for having me today man it was it was a it was a pleasure meeting you and and chris and the whole gang down here it's it's very tempting to sort of just <laughs> just move to southern kelly yeah man the ocean's just out there i'll take <laughs> yeah. you surfing again <laughs> i'd love to I'll, I'll definitely be coming back and yeah. hopefully with some better news next time man thank you so much for taking the time to come on if people want to get in touch with you where can they reach out um, just on social media, if they go to at King Rom on anything, Twitter, Instagram. K-I-N-G-R-A-A-M. Yeah, R-A-A-M, two A's. Thank you and so much, Rom. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hope to see you next time down here, brother. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Crash, and this is by Rom himself. Once again, thank you so much to everyone who donates to this podcast on Patreon. It's people like you who keep it ad-free and allow me to prioritize the show. So if you can spare the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee every month, you can click the link below Rom's bio and support the show on Patreon. You can also head over to my website, kyle.surf. On my website, kyle.surf, you can check out my book club. Uh, You can sign up for my monthly email. That's where I send you the best documentaries I've been watching, best books I've been reading, podcasts I've been listening to, all kinds of good shit, Uh, as well as all of my latest writing. Um, I write for a few different media outlets, and I post all the articles on my website, kyle.surf. All right, everyone, get out in the water, get your face wet, whatever kind of water that is, lake, stream, river, bathtub, promise it'll make your day better. And thank you so much for listening. Here is Crash by King Rom.
Char 